Hey, girl bosses, we're back and hopefully preaching to the choir because today's episode is all about inspiring you to get your vote on. We've decided to reshare with you one of our most popular Girl Boss Radio episodes featuring actress, fearless activist, podcast host, and unparalleled orator, Alyssa Milano. Neha Gandhi interviewed Alyssa back in May 2019, discussing her friendship with presidential candidate Joe Biden, the importance of leveraging social media, and being outspoken. We're resharing this episode because there is so much change needed in the world right now, and the team here at Girlboss wants you to know that your voice is heard, and your voice is needed. You and the rest of the world probably know Alyssa from her starring roles in TV favorites like Charmed and Who's the Boss, both such iconic shows. But this episode gives us insight into her powerful activist side. It all started in the 80s when 15-year-old Alyssa kissed a boy ostracized for having AIDS. Can you imagine? In 2015, she relaunched the Me Too movement with a single message. This girl has discussed gun rights with Ted Cruz and Fred Gutenberg. She drives voters to polls and continues to leverage her platform for activism. At the time of this episode, Alyssa had not yet endorsed Biden. She did so in March 2020. Ready to listen in? Let's roll. Alyssa Milano. Hi. Thank you for being on Girl Boss Radio. Thank you so much for having me. So much to talk about, but I think where I want to start is the work that you've been doing recently because partially because it's really important work, but I actually want to take a step further back and talk about how you got here. You started acting at the age of seven. You've been acting for a long time. You've been producing. You have a clothing line. You've done all these things, and now you've really found... I don't know how to say now, but you've really found your voice and you found a space to make that known on a public platform. And you talk about things that are very different from the work that you did growing up. You talk about gun control. You talk about your own experiences with sexual abuse. You talk about equal rights. And I know you're going to the hearing on Tuesday about the ERA and I want to hear all about that. But how did you get there? Like, how did you find that confidence to say that? I think it was a very gradual trajectory to where I am right now, but always such a big part of my life. And I think that the biggest difference right now is social media and how even though what I'm doing is a lot more concentrated because there are a lot more issues that we're fighting for, besides that, the only real difference is the fact that I have a platform that I get to control. Whereas in the past, the social justice work that I that I did was sort of very boots on the ground. And that's why I love being boots on the ground so much now. But also, it entailed someone actually giving me a platform, whether that be a magazine article or a newspaper, I couldn't create my own sort of megaphone. And I think that for better or for worse, social media has given everyone their own megaphone. So I get to control a lot more of the exposure of what what I do. And it's still not all of what I do because I feel that there are certain things that are sacred and that uh, require a sense of um, privacy so there is much more, but 
I think the biggest difference between and why it seems like all of a sudden I do so much more is just because I'm able to put it out there and I'm not at um, someone's uh, whim of selling a publication that's going to give me space. Right. There is this democratization of voice and and the ability to share ideas. But I think it's also it's an interesting double-edged sword because you can just say anything with the click of a button. And I think that, you know, I'm a writer and I'm always used to having an editor and someone to say, hey, did you think about this thing? Do you want to say that? And I think we say whatever we want to on social media. Do you feel any sense of fear or uncertainty ever about just throwing your ideas out there? I mean, I'm, I'm a thinker anyway, so I never really, I'm a, I try to be as thoughtful as humanly possible when I'm putting, especially when you start to think about this is going out to 3.5 million people, even if no one retweets it, right? So it, it can get very overwhelming, and, and I don't ever want to n- not use my voice out of fear. But having said that, I've always been a very cautious person back you know, to my childhood, I was never, you know, my daughter is a little daredevil, and I was never daredevil. So I try to be thoughtful about it. But again, I think it's, you know, part of the beauty of, of, of what we're able to do with social media is have an uh, unfiltered uh, voice that resonates. I think a lot of the love affair that I, I had with social media in the beginning was really about this idea of unfiltered experience and um, unfiltered information that then we were able to process in our own private time. It's not going through. Because if you think about even the news and the dimensions things have to go through to get to your living room, it's makeup, it's lights, it's cameras that then go through some sort of cables that then goes up to a satellite that comes back down to another satellite. So even if it's like raw information or someone being super emotional, there's still a a formula to get it there that is very processed, right? Whereas if someone sends out a tweet and it comes to the your phone, it doesn't feel as processed. It's basically an unfiltered emotion or moment. How did you go about educating yourself in the issues that you were most passionate about? And I ask this certainly because I want your experience, but for the women who are listening who think, you know, I'm passionate about that, but I don't know where to start getting the information I need to feel really informed. I think the most important thing is if you're if you're passionate about something, uh, you should seek out people that are either going through that issue or um, can speak to it personally, because I feel like and this is I think part of my experience with UNICEF. I've been a UNICEF ambassador since 2003 and I've traveled the world and seen some really tough hardships. I think it is very smart that UNICEF puts its ambassadors in the field because what that allows for is a personal interaction so that my job as an ambassador is to come back and be the voice of the people that I met. It's a very personal connection. It's a very personal experience. I think it would be incredibly easy to um, just you know, get sent talking points and speak to those talking points and spew out statistics. And, you know, and I can certainly do that. I can, I'm an actress. I can memorize anything. 
But will it resonate? Will it touch someone's heart and mind? To me, what touches someone's heart and mind is having a physical experience with someone. So all of the issues that I'm passionate about that I've learned about have been through other people. Um, I didn't go to college. You know, I love learning. I read a lot of books. Um, I ask people for recommendations of books. But part of the reason why I love, especially in the in the political realm that we're in right now, the, the reason why I love driving people to the polls, um, campaigning for politicians within their district, is because you get a really human sense of the issues that the country is facing. Not only, you know, race, gender, but also just experience, just their lives, their their experience. And that those lessons have been invaluable. So I think it's a, it's an important thing to remember because we are so consumed with our devices that we've like as little human contact as possible is is the, the norm right now. Um, you know, you can't even call a company without having like you know to speak to someone you have to press whatever it's like no I just want human contact so I think it's important to remember that that human contact is also an incredible education Um, and it's not just an education on the issues but also a soulful education on humanity another side to that which I think is that it's easy for people to be really upset about things that you say. It's easy to get called out and to feel like there is sometimes this sense of like public shaming that happens instantly on Twitter. I think on Twitter especially more so than other social platforms that, you know, sometimes people learn from it. And I think what I've always appreciated about the way you react to those things is there seems to always be a sense of like, okay, I learned something and I'm here to do better. And yeah, because we you. have to listen. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and also this idea of the call out culture that we're in right now and um, this sort of group mentality, I think, is losing not only the human element of uh, experience and, and, and making mistakes, but also this sense of where everyone has to react to certain things a certain way or it's not the right emotion or feeling in that moment. And that's very hard to translate in, in, in social media, right? And that it's part of the reason why I started the podcast is to be able to have a longer conversation and really get into the nuance of, of all of these issues and the backbone of the issues but also to have unapologetic conversations about things that uh, we can all learn from, or maybe someone can listen and go, you know what, I never thought of it that way. And I don't know if you get that kind of nuance from from Twitter. I think we're also, there's, there's a certain element of being addicted to the drama of the call out that I think is super dangerous as well. Like, you know, all of a sudden people show up on my timeline when they think I'm going to be called out on something. But there's, there's, I think, something that needs to be remembered, which is if I'm projecting uh, a certain uh, viewpoint and I'm being given that platform and everyone is on an equal playing field and everyone has that same platform, then they have every right to tell me how they feel about it. 
So it's really a give and take. I think you have to get to the point to use social media effectively where actually just to be you know, a productive ally in any sense where you have to let go of your own ego and what you think you know and be open to continuing to learn and be responsive and continue to want to make a difference. So, I mean, it never feels personal to you. Like, it sounds like you don't have insecurity about those moments. I don't. I have a lot of insecurity within my family and friends and coworkers and people that are in my my circle that I would never want to put in horrible positions or make their lives more difficult with what I'm saying or doing. And it's kind of the equivalent of, um, I remember, you know, being a kid and, and being Famous as a child is a really weird thing. I don't know if I can curse here, but I'm sure you can beep it out or whatever. (laughs) And it wasn't because it was like a self-reflection weird. It was weird because I didn't want my family to feel uncomfortable by it or my dad to feel protective that, you know, some guy was saying weird things to me. It was more about everybody else. Even as a kid. Even as a kid. Even more so as a kid, right? Because you're totally not self-aware even though you're self-absorbed, mm-hmm. you so badly want to make a parent proud or, or not feel any disdain. So I think that it's that same mentality of I'm on my path. I know what my path is. I do everything with a certain amount of integrity. I know what I believe in. I know what I have to fight for. But the thought of what I do affecting my children and my husband and my parents in a negative way is what gets me more than, you know, if someone calls me a baby killer. I get that quite a bit. I don't know if you've seen like Brene Brown's Netflix special yet, Mm -mm. but I saw her give a talk recently and she was talking about, she said this thing that I thought was so poignant about our sort of cancel culture, if you will, which was that shame and humiliation are tools of oppression. They can't also be tools of social justice. And mm, I love it. Yes. I feel so divorced from how we talk to each other. And shame today. is a spectrum too, right? It's like, obviously, sexual harassment in the workplace is very different than sexual assault. But it's a, it's, it's a spectrum of abuse of power, right? So obviously shaming someone about what they wear is very different than body shaming, but it's still that spectrum of a cultural phenomenon that we're sort of in right now. Um, And maybe we always were in that, but it's just more apparent now because of social media. It's amplified and anonymous now. Right, right. Yeah. The (laughs) anonymous thing gets me every time. It's like, wait, you get to know who I am. Right, I don't know who you are throwing these 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 daggers. Who who are you hiding behind the frog icon? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I think it's I think we're in a really interesting time, and I hope that there is a enough of a realization and self reflection where we're able to go. Okay, this is not the healthiest way to behave towards other people, and it's so disconnected. Again, that's why I love to do the field work because it feels like it's it's real life. Right. Real people talking real people about, their, talking about their real issues. You know, if you lived only on Twitter in the Twitter bubble, you would think everything 
that our country is facing right now is because of Russia and collusion and potential collusion. And are we going to impeach or not impeach? Right. But when you go out into the real world, people are not talking about Russia. They're not talking about collusion. They're talking about, you know, their house being flooded from a tornado. They're talking about losing their health care. They're talking about Social Security. They're talking about Medicare. They're talking about uh, education, the gun violence, real human issues. And so I think that it is so important for people to, if they are interested in learning more about an issue or social justice work or volunteering somewhere. It's got to be in person. I mean, we can all text bank and write postcards, but we need that human interaction. It's how we evolve. It's how we're able to, to move on past issues. How is this for relatable? Is your inbox a never-ending nightmare of new emails? I'm going to spare you babes a screenshot of my smartphone screen showing 42,124 unread emails in my email app. I am serious. How stressful is it for you every time you hear that little swish or ping when a new email comes in? I feel you. You need Mailman. Mailman is an email assistant that can help you stop the endless stream of unimportant emails and interruptions and spikes in stress levels, making sure important communications stay highlighted and you stay productive. Imagine getting notifications every few hours instead of every few seconds. <sighs> I am less stressed out just listening to myself talk about it. Try Mailman for free for three weeks at mailmanhq.com girlboss. If you like it, use the code girlboss, one word, all caps, to save 20% on your first year. Get the link in our show notes. I want to talk about your podcast, Sorry Not Sorry. Your first episode was with... Joe Biden yes. just announced his candidacy recently. Yes. What was that conversation like? It was great. I mean, I've I've known Joe for a while. Um, I've had numerous conversations with him recently, uh, you know, about the allegations that, that came out. And I feel as though, I mean, as much as the vice president of eight years of the United States and of America can be your friend... <laughs> I feel like uh, Vice President Biden is a friend. Here's the story that I think encapsulates who he is. He called me for my birthday last year, which, right, that should be enough, right? That should be enough of the story, but the story actually gets better. He, I asked him what he was doing. He said he was in the car with his granddaughter, who he had picked up from college, and the two of them we're just taking a road trip together alone. And that's Joe Biden. So, you know, we we talked for the podcast before he announced. It was before the allegations came out as well. And basically, I wanted to talk to him about, you know, It's On Us, which is the, his organization that he started um, to prevent sexual assault on college campuses, was well before Me Too. And what he did was very interesting, which was he put the emphasis on the, the, the men's responsibility to not be abusive, to not make dumb choices. And if there was a, a man amongst that man who was potentially making dumb choices, who was to call that man out and make sure that the young woman was safe. And at the time, 
He was ridiculed for that. How could you put so much pressure on our young men? It's not all their fault. What if the girl drinks and is drunk or is wearing provocative clothing? What if she asked for it? What if she asked for it? And Joe Biden, well before it was time, um, well before me too, said, no woman ever asks for this. And we have to give our young men this responsibility. And he, he has this pledge that college students male college college students take. And so uh, I thought it was an appropriate conversation to have, not only because I just find it fascinating that, you know, Joe Biden would choose this as his issue, um, but also where we are right now, post Me Too. And I think we're at the point now where we have to start inviting more men to this conversation to help us. And so it, it was a great conversation. We also talked a, a little bit about uh, Betsy DeVos and her changing of, of Title IX. So, yeah, so I, I, I think he's a special guy. And it kind of goes to this thing of, you know, and it's confusing. And I'll be the first person to tell you I don't have all the answers on this. But if someone has been accused of something, it is really important that we obviously listen to the woman that or the man that is feeling this abuse of power against them, this feeling, this vulnerability, feeling that they were taken advantage of or hurt in any way or harassed. But then what? Right? And and I have said quite often, we can't just put all these men on an island and forget about them and just let them fend for themselves. These are men that have um, careers. They're men that have families. There are men that I think we need to figure out how to reinvite them back into society at some point. And if they re-enter the workplace or society or be are given second chances, what do women need to feel safe around those men? And I think we need to have that conversation. We need to have it in a serious way because, mind you, criminal behavior is a totally separate thing. If you're a serial rapist... Or a rapist at all. Or a rapist at all. But um, you should not, obviously, be allowed to, to unless you're proven innocent. Um, but these gray areas, these cases that are like, well... Is it nefarious? Is it not nefarious? Um, if we are believing survivors, is it that at the expense of someone's innocence? There's a lot of discussion to be had here, and we need to have it, and we need to have it in a really public way. And I sat back after Miss um, Flores uh, made her accusations against Joe and, and came forward, and I kind of was like, what is he going to do? Like, what is going to be the response here? And although it wasn't perfect, I think having that powerful white dude be able to say, every woman should be heard, and I'm willing to learn and grow, that meant a lot to me. It actually meant something to me. It meant, like, the culture was changing and shifting. And it was also a good, I think, example of how someone can still be masculine and cop to it. Be like, I'm so sorry I made you feel this way. This is never my intention. Um, so it was it was an interesting thing. And I think within all of these stories, they're so important 
because we're having these conversations and they've never been had before. And there's never been a real because of that, there's there's no vocabulary. There's no vocabulary to this. We're creating this vocabulary as we go along. So but I really think the most important thing that we need to focus on right now is recruiting more men into the movement and really uh, holding them responsible for changing the culture and societal oppression of, of women. And then to figure out what happens next. Like, what happens with Aziz Ansari, right? Like, what happens to Aziz Ansari, right? Like, everybody read that article and was like, well, I don't know. I've had a few experiences like that in my 20s where I didn't really want to be there, but I was there and, like, things happened and I'm not comfortable with that, you know? And it was so important that she came forward with how she felt because that allowed another another conversation to, to happen. And it's within these gray situations where... I think the most reflection sort of goes into it and we're able to have a conversation and create the vocabulary that hasn't been created already. I hope that that's what that means. I hope that, you know, people do engage in those conversations. Well, I hope that also he comes forward to have those conversations rather than not. And I think that that's actually, to me, the bigger question about Joe Biden, right? I think that there's one piece of the conversation around him right now about allegations. But I think the bigger question mark in my mind is the conversation about Anita Hill and the way she he treated her. And I think that that phrasing, he treated her, that agency, that active voice during the congressional hearings that he was in charge of merits an apology. And I think that the thing that it's, you know, that she's been saying of this past week especially is I want accountability. Like I don't count that as an apology. If you are just sorry that it happened to me, it feels a little bit like, and I think that some of this comes back to how do we engage in politics, but it feels a little like, Oh, I'm sorry that your feelings were hurt or I'm sorry that you feel this way, but I'm not sorry that I did it. But he he was one man on a very big, but he was in charge. He was. And then from that moment, and by the way, he has called her. I don't know what that private conversation entailed, and we're only hearing her side. So, But he made sure that women were included in the Judiciary Committee moving forward because of that decision. He wrote the Violence Against Women's Act. I mean, this is, this is a man that, in a time when it wasn't cool to stand up for women, this is before Me Too, he was doing more so, not everything that he could have done, but I also want to remind people that when you have decades of public service and voting history, there's going to be shit. There's going to be shit. And there's no perfect candidate. Um, and my concern right now, which is beyond my friendship with Biden, is who's going to win? And that's all I care about right now is who is going to win and also who's not going to divide the country more. I haven't endorsed Biden yet because I think it's it's early, but I do think that he is the closest we have to someone that could beat Trump only because 
as much as I would love for Elizabeth Warren. She's so amazing. Her policy is so incredible. I think the post-Me Too patriarchy is not ready for a woman to be president. And I think we've seen that from the Kavanaugh hearings. I think that white male is not ready to go vote for a woman and maybe even less ready than before Me Too because they're seeing their power slip away and being held accountable for those abuses of power. You know, they all have their shit. There's not one of them that doesn't have their shit. So I'd much rather a guy that's got their shit from 1991 but has experience and um, can can appeal to voters from a wide demographic than, than someone who is not going to win. I mean, I'm an activist. There's no one that wants a progressive candidate to be president more than me. I just don't feel like this is the right time. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think... The the numbers tell their own story, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we see what we already see in the polls. And we have to remember that information is filtered. Yeah. We have to remember that information is filtered. So we're getting a very sided look at even the press from when he, Joe is announced. It's It's all very filtered. So I think the best thing for everyone to do is to look into their hearts and and figure out the candidate that resonates most within their being and then go fight for them. I do want to talk about your career and your work as an actress. The team, um, we had a really funny split reaction when people heard that you were coming to record for Girl Boss Radio. Half of the team, and it divides by like a funny age barrier, were like, oh my God, I loved Who's the Boss. And the other half were like, oh, charmed, I love it. And of course, people know the work that you're doing today as well. But I think it's so interesting to have been on, you know, over the course of like a really long period of formative years for you to have been on these shows. And I think I'm especially curious about your time on Who's the Boss, where probably less so than most other shows that were on the air at the time, there were two really strong women running things that, you know, female characters. And I think Catherine Hellman especially was this... Yeah, that show is so before its time. When I you know. think about it, it was a divorced mother who ran her own business, who had a promiscuous mother, who was like a cougar, right? (laughs) And then um, Judith owned her own business and then hired a man to be her, like, Manny. I mean, it was very, very progressive for that time. But we didn't realize that while we were making it. Oh, okay. Interesting. It just felt like I mean, I didn't at least. I was 11 to 19, so maybe I wasn't thinking that deeply about it but I think you know that was the era of the living room couch sitcom you know where an entire show is based around families living rooms Mm -hmm. whether it be the Cosby show or Family Ties or uh, Happy Days any of any of those shows and I think that it was another way to tell that story with a different backdrop yeah because we're all telling the same stories, right? They're all human stories of love and raising kids and family and what that all mean, having a business. And and those stories I don't think have changed throughout time, but it's really the backdrop that changes. And people ask me so often, like, with all these reunions, are you going to do a Who's the Boss reunion? And I don't – It's it was special because 
of what we were able to do then mm-hmm. in the 80s, right? I don't know if it would be as progressive or special now. That's fair. I think sometimes nostalgia is better left. Yeah. I want to hear a little bit about advice that you potentially got from people in the industry over the years, like how you sort of found your own footing and how you advocated for yourself. I think especially being like a teenager. I still don't know if I advocate for myself, (laughs) but I think... You know, it is a very interesting existence, but it's all I knew, so it was normal for me. I'm dyslexic, so I think that that was being tutored on a set was probably a lifesaver for me because I had that one-on-one, and I was able to learn at my own pace. From people in the industry, I mean, I was on TV at a time when kids didn't make it to adult actors, right? It was the cute little kid from that show, and then they, you know, don't work after that. So I got a lot of, like, save your money, make sure your parents aren't stealing your money, <laughs> um, figure out what what you want to do. And, and uh, you know, when the show ended, there was certainly some soul-searching, but not because I was fearful of losing what I had accomplished, but more so... Because I felt like it always chose me and that I didn't make a conscious decision to be an actress. It was just I was blessed. A lot of it was being in the right place at the right time and having opportunity. And so a lot of it was like, wait, is this do I want to keep doing this or would I rather go to college and, and study something else or and ultimately I felt like I could do everything if I was an actress because of the platform it would enable me now mind you and and that goes back to my activism which started when I was 15 years old Uh, I kissed Ryan White on television to prove that you couldn't get HIV AIDS from casual contact and that might be a reason why the criticism never gets to me is because at 15, when you're dealing with criticism of kissing someone that was HIV positive during the apex of the stigma surrounding the disease, I was called such horrible names. And it didn't matter to me because I knew that it was the right thing to do at 15. And it also gave my celebrityism purpose, which I think when you're a teenager, you really need to find that within your being. The privilege guilt when you're 15 is really weird. Like, I can buy my own car and be 16 in high school. It, it was very weird. Trying to find the right place to put all of my blessings was hard. But when I kissed Ryan, I realized why. So to me, continuing acting was about, like, well, I can do this and still have a voice to help more people. And and I still do it for that reason. I, I act because it's fun, but also because it enables me to do so many other things. Um, not only, you know, in the, in the, like having a platform, but also just to financially be able to help people in a charitable sense. I, I can't think of what else I would be able to do do make the living that I live but still be able to devote so much time to humanity and and hopefully making a difference and continuing a platform 
right? It's one of the few careers that buy, mm-hmm. when you're successful, it buys you flexibility and yes. means. It's kind of, a, again, a double-edged sword because you have also the name recognition that would keep people from hiring you because you're so vocal and active, which I've also had in my career. And there is always that moment of like, is this sponsor going to drop me? You know, like that kind of, uh, am I not going to get that role because, you know, I spoke out about gun violence and there's a gun in the movie. You know, there's just so many things that, um, and I think that's why you don't hear more actors speak out. But ultimately, because it's something that has always fulfilled me since I was a young girl, I don't, I can't separate it. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about your life as a working mom. I think you talk a little bit about your kids. You have a little boy and a little girl. Um, And I am curious about the advice that you have for them, right? How you think about what you want to pass on to them, like especially talking about the state of the world today. It can feel like a really frightening place to have children. I'm not frightened to have children or to raise my children right now. And in fact, it is my greatest motivator. So, and that's not fear-based, but that's something every mother can relate to, whether it's in our own circle or, you know, fighting for social issues. I think something that I've learned with them is it is very, it's much more important for them to get the information from me in this climate than to hear things, whether it be from the TV or whether it be through friends. I know how I would teach issues to my children. So I choose to do it because I'm fearful of how other people would teach my kids those issues. I know what I tell them. I don't know what they're getting from other people. So I'm almost preemptive about how we talk about things. And it's sort of that philosophy of, um, you know, that great Mr. Rogers quote, uh, when his mother, there was some disaster and his mother said, he was overwhelmed and his mother said, when you're watching this, look for the helpers. Yeah. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful thing. But any anything that I teach them that seems like, well, they shouldn't know that they're just kids. It's tough stuff, but I teach them in a hopeful way by look at how many people are fighting for the rights of dreamers or, you know, and, and that that's as, as common as breathing is to them, that is what helping people should be. That's a really nice lesson. Um, I want to do sort of like a quick like speed round of okay. great advice. What is like the one bit of advice that you have for other working moms? Stop trying to look for balance. It doesn't exist. Oh, what do you look for instead? I don't look for anything. I focus on what's right in front of me in that moment. And if it's my kids and giving them a bath, then I am really good at that in that moment. If it's doing my podcast, I really try to focus on that. If it's at whatever it is, what's right in front of me in that moment. Because I it, people say, how do you do so much? It's like, well, I just focus on that much and I try to not stress about it and I do the best that I can in that moment. What about your best negotiation advice? With the kids Uh, or in life? In life. Know your worth and fight for it. Your best advice for aspiring actresses out there? Have a plan B. 
(laughs) (laughs) And on that note, your best advice for people trying to make the leap from whatever career into something else. Have faith that it's going to work out. Uh, And my last one is your best advice for someone trying to gather up their own courage to do something difficult, to do something brave. Always remember the motivation behind why you want to do it and focus on that. I find it's easier to be brave or courageous when it's not only about you, but when it's about the benefits it will bring other people. And my final question is just... In your skin today, where you sit in your life, having accomplished so much already, but you know, with years of career ahead of you, what does the concept of success mean to you personally? My concept of success constantly changes. And I think that's what motivates me to continue to try new things. But the foundation of what truly brings me fulfillment and makes me feel happy and content has nothing to do with outside career or being a driven woman or how I need to prove something. It's just simply about love and love of the family. Was that always the case? I mean, what did it used to be? That was always the case for me because it was how I grew up. It was how I was able to um, deal with uh, an industry at a young age that could be really hard on on women and young people. It was important for me to always, or important for my parents to instill in me that I wasn't just an actress, that I was also a daughter and a sister and a friend. And all of those things are what make someone complete. And what you do for a living is... A very small part of that. It's a job. That's really beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Of course. Uh, thank you so much for being here with us thank today. You. This was such a treat. Thank you for having me. Wow, Alyssa, you've just inspired us to never stop believing in the power of our own voice. Girl bosses, get out there and vote. You are worth it. We are worth it. And we are in this together. Share your love for Girlboss Radio and this episode on Instagram, Insta Stories, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook. And as always, be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to sign up for our new daily email, The Girlboss Daily. In the meantime, keep crushing it.